Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, The Two of Us, featuring Danga Dutt, Tony Doherty, Ben McKelvey and Elsa Piper in conversation with Rosemary Milsom, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thanks everyone for being here. Isn't it a gorgeous afternoon? We're here today to talk about the two of us. Obviously, there's four of us <laughs> on stage, five of us on stage, but two collaborations, very different collaborations. An email written from Sydney priest Tony Doherty to Melbourne author Alice Piper saying how much he enjoyed her latest book, which was Sinning Across Spain, which I actually reviewed, coincidentally, and I regard as one of the best travel books written by an Australian writer. I used to review travel books quite a lot, so it's a a fantastic book. So I support Tony's uh, praise of Ailsa. He wrote to Ailsa to thank her for the book. Since then, it was a catalyst, in a way, for um, a surprising friendship. Traditionally kind of an odd couple. (laughs) Since then, they've discussed through their correspondence everything from dinner party menus and shoes to family, faith, grief and love. And their correspondence has been collected in this wonderful book called The Attachment. On my far right, journalist Ben McKelvey worked with former boy soldier turned lawyer and refugee advocate Deng Adut, who I think knows half the people in this marquee. He was somewhat reluctant at the beginning, so we're going to hear a little bit more about that process. Uh, The result, of course, is Songs of a War Boy, which has been short, long-listed and short-listed for a number of awards. So join me in welcoming the four panellists. Writing a book, I don't think we'd... I'm a journalist, I know writing as a journalist, is not ordinarily seen as a collaborative process. And I know that... People get involved. You have editors uh, with publishers. You have staff who ultimately do get involved. But, you know, usually it's a writer sitting down, gluing their backside to a seat and writing. And I've interviewed a lot of writers. And as I said, I'm a feature writer, so I'm often having to stick my backside on a seat for a number of hours. It's a lonely pursuit. So I think it's very interesting and quite unusual to have books that have resulted from a collaboration. These two books are very different collaborations, though, and I think we might start by just introducing the, no- the nature of your, your individual collaborations. So, uh, Tony and Al- I might ask you, Tony and Elsa, just to outline how you came to come together to produce a book. Well, yes, I did write to Elsa uh, about the book, Sydney Across Spain. That was the first big mistake I made. <laughs> The, uh, but I didn't simply write to uh, congratulate her. I really wanted to do that. City Across Spain has an interestingly theological twist of uh, a medieval story, but perhaps I also should tell this story. And I was interested in the theology of it and more or less saying, keep out of this business. Uh, this is my turf. Uh, there are boundaries on this turf. So uh, it began in a sort of an ironic little... Uh, a rollicking story, and um, and it kicked on. I didn't realise that I was writing to one of the most uh, uh, obsessive, uh, regular, uh, univocal writers you'd you ever find. But uh, and but theologically a fence sitter. Yes, I'm the theological fence sitter. I carried people's sins across Spain for 1,300 kilometres, 
But I didn't actually know what that meant. I kind of did it as a joke. So when Tony said, let's talk theology a little bit, we also talked li licorice quite a lot, um, uh, it was a bit of a surprise. But in fact, what I met in this very unlikely friendship was um, a curious mind. And so thousands of letters ensued, mostly emails, some of them written. Um, and then there came a moment when we, we met and after that we thought we'd like to do something together, whether it be just to open up the conversation we were having because I think what this book is finally is a love song to respectful conversation. Um, I think there are, there are many differences. It's really easy to find the differences between the two of us but I think both of us were seeking to find points of connection and I think that's why you come to writers festivals. You want this kind of conversation where we can hear the other person speak. So ultimately that's what we were doing. There were lots of arguments um, but we wanted to do something together and we started trying to write and we wrote thousands and thousands of words that were pretentious and kind of not us about big topics. So did you and decide to what, did you decide then to write letters to each other with a view of having the book? No, we had the letters. We had far too many letters. We th we didn't think the letters would be interesting to anyone, so we wrote essays about, you know, Greek and Jewish theology and I wrote about oh you know the the inheritance of the Greek drama and oh it was dead 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 boring. dead, dead. <laughs> and then finally there came a moment when I chopped 30,000 words out of the manuscript and was left mostly with letters and well, I said my to, words too, that, I I let, yes <laughs> thank you <laughs> I chopped everything of me out and I said what do you think about this and he went now nah, you've woken up um and it felt very humble and very private and very tender but that's what we basically ended up with, except for some letters to the reader. But that, which sounds so simple, took us years, actually. Um, you know, it did take a long time to, to say what's important is the small stuff that's us, not the big, mm. overreaching, clever stuff that is not us. So you had that connection prior to the book, and, and you just mentioned that, in a sense, your relationship and the writing of letters was about trying to find those points of connection. So, Deng, I'm interested in your process. When you decided you want to tell, wanted to tell your story, what were you looking for in a writer? You, you didn't... I don't think you knew Ben before this process, so did you have an idea in your mind of the type of writer, the type of person you wanted to help you with your story? <coughs> Sorry, guys. Hello, how are you? Yes, I actually didn't... I didn't want to tell my story to anyone at all. I did refuse to, to accept uh, anyone to write my story initially. So it was a hell of a work just to convince me to, uh, to write a story. Was the convincing done on the part of the publisher? Uh, yes, the publisher was great. She was excellent. Uh, I shared uh, all of them, all the team, they were just brilliant and... and uh, because there were other offers, I just turned them off, all of them, except they sent me a small video where they basically tell me why I should, they convince me why I should tell my story. And I said, okay, I'll go ahead with you. That's not a problem. And then they gave me a bunch of other writers, ghostwriters that will assist me. And there were some of the good name, big name, that have written a lot of books. Uh, most of them being to, even to South Sudan. And uh, Ben, somehow, I trusted him. 
it was just almost like an instinct. I trusted him, and I wanted somebody that could uh, travel with me back to South Sudan. I know he was young enough, he, and he would take those risks with me because I know uh, one of the one of the bad bad thing in my mind was how could I risk his life because the country is not safe, and somehow. Uh, we we had coffee. We start chatting, and from there I say, "Well, this man must be nuts or mad enough." <laughs> <laughs> so I say, "All right, I think he's mad enough to come with me." And I ask him, "Would you come with me?" And then he say, "Yes." And that's when we developed that relationship, and it was from there that how the book is actually uh, being written. So it was from that trust point of view. Ben, you've written other books. I mean, you're a journalist, but you have written other books. What's it like when, uh, you know, someone contacts you and says, look, we want you to meet someone? Is it a bit like a first date? You know, obviously, you're keen for the, for the, for the job. You, yeah. you, you want to do the job. Uh, did you feel a bit intimidated or did you feel you had to prove your credentials? Or, you know, what was the situation like from your perspective? I mean, well, yes, I wanted to do the, do the book and, and do the story with Deng. Um, but the first time that I met him... <clears throat> I couldn't really get a handle on what kind of guy he was, and <laughs> it was a very it was a very unusual meeting, the first meeting that we had, and I was wondering whether I wanted to do the book and whether we were actually going to be able to hammer out, you know, a coherent narrative. Um, and it was it, it's true that, uh, that the decision to go to South Sudan was was definitely the the Rubicon moment because I knew that we were going to be going to a dangerous place. I'd been to conflict zones before, but South Sudan, you know, is a is a sort of society in ruins. Um, and I was going to be trusting him and he was going to be trusting me and it really was, you know, like, apologies for the language, but it, for both of us, we're like, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true journo. <laughs> 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 that notion of trust, uh, Tony and Elsa, when you have to reveal... I mean, the, the letters are very intimate. I mean, they, they're glimpses inside your friendship and your lives... You obviously have to hand over that trust equally. Were there was there negotiations around that about how much to reveal, what not to include, or, or, or to keep back? Well, there's various stages of this, of course. I mean, there's the initial letters that we exchange between one another, and they were simply per- two personal letters that uh, grew in, I think, trying to find out. I wanted to find out who Elsa was and what drove her to write this, yes, extraordinary book, Sinning Across Spain. And uh, I think that she was curious about my story. The subtitle of the book is um, Letters from a Most Unlikely Friendship. And that's, uh, that really goes to the heart of it too. I mean, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm a member of a, of a essentially patriarchal system and I have been for 50 years. Uh, I'm, I was born in the Depression in Australia. Uh, I'm, uh, I lived in Sydney and grew up in Sydney. Uh, we have all sorts of different um, belief systems. I often call the, the letters or the, the book a story between a believer and an unbeliever. But I'm not sure which is which. <laughs> and that's a laugh line, but actually it goes to the heart of that exploring one another's stories and value systems and dreams. And so it did, they are very personal letters. Um, And I wondered, in fact, 
in fact, not wondered. I'm, I'm astonished that they were ever published. Uh, I just didn't didn't have the imagination to to believe that this material, so personal and, and intimate, would uh, would have much reading attraction. Mm. But uh, we came across a remarkable publisher, Jane Palfrey, and she said, "Yes, they do." But I'm still surprised sitting here <laughs> talking about those funny letters. But so in terms th of putting them into the world, you were actually also quite apprehensive about that, weren't you? I was, oh yes, yeah. I mean, uh, apprehensive at various levels, my family, uh, my colleagues, you know, crusty old bachelor priests. What's <laughs> this guy going talk about, uh, you know, an intimate friendship with a, with a beautiful young woman, 30 years younger than him or something. Uh, in fact, only last week, a colleague of mine, a very good theologian in, uh, in Australia named Andrew Hamilton, a Jesuit, he wrote a beautiful review of the letter, might I say, immodestly. But for me, it meant a great deal that somebody regarded simple personal letters as having substance and a wider value. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the answer is I did approach it with a certain amount of um, hesitancy but um, and surprise that they were interested. But, in fact, getting feedback now that I think that's, yeah, good. But one of the things about that is that I was quite shocked to learn was that, you know, when Tony was at the seminary, which is going back a long way, admittedly, <laughs> he was told to keep his friends within the priests. Yeah. So not only not to go outside to other men, but, I mean, the idea of a friendship with a woman. Because I have heaps and heaps of male friends. My life would be a desert if I didn't have them. So I don't kind of... I mean, for me, that was a really strange thing. So it hadn't occurred to me that just the act of being seen to be publicly in a friendship with a woman was radical in the eyes of Tony's world. Because it's so... I come from the theatre... It's so not radical in my world, you know, it's completely normal. So uh, putting them out, I wasn't always aware of Tony's stuff. And my stuff about them was just that they were precious because the friendship grew through the letters mm. and my husband died very suddenly three years ago and Tony became one of my biggest supporters. And that was only through letters, you know. So write a letter to someone. <laughs> <laughs> or an email. Yeah. Ben and Deng, when... Talking about that notion of um, apprehension, and Deng, you've mentioned you're apprehensive about telling your story. How did you negotiate that together? I mean, I'm sure there are, there are such harrowing details in the book. How, is everything in the book? Did you decide between each other to keep something out? Were, was there, were there decisions made um, from either party that, no, we won't include this? Um, almost everything's in there um, and it was, the way that it worked is initially there'd be a revelation or, or Deng would remember something or he'd decide to reveal something um, <clears throat> and as it was from that first conversation it was very difficult to articulate it and understand it and it, it took a long time for us to go back uh, and flesh out the details and for Deng to be comfortable with it and for it to give it context as well. Um, the thing that I think of immediately is um, the Didinga. The, 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 there was an incident that Deng was involved in, in uh, an atrocity. Um, mm. And initially it was a throwaway and he sort of just told me and, and laughed. But that was because, you know, it's the, the way that you deal with those sorts of mm. things. And then later on, I, you know, that wasn't necessarily the appropriate time to come back and, and probe. Um, 
and I think it was I think it was only when we got to South Sudan that we actually really talked about that, and yeah. that is in the book because <clears throat> contextually, you know, it's okay. He was a kid. You know, the, he doesn't have any culpability, um, and so we had to get to that point where it was okay for him. It was okay for everybody. You know, it kind of, and the, the truth had to be told. It was it was essential. Mm-hmm. So there's not much that um, that we took out. It is very harrowing, and that particular incident is particularly harrowing. Uh, Deng, in terms of retelling it, I mean, you obviously stored all these stories and incidences, you know, in your mind, and you were reluctant initially. In terms of telling that story, did it cause you further pain, or, or, or as, you know, given your safe in Australia, time had passed, and you then grew to trust Ben? Did 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 that help? sort of ameliorate any damage in the retelling? Uh, n- not really. Um, not really, because I, I, didn't, I didn't kill the guys. I tortured them. That's what I did. And in terms of torturing, I think I was tortured more than anyone else that li- as, that's alive in this world. So for me, it was almost eye for an eye. And I believed in that at the time, that torturing was okay. And... Of course, um, their death, it was something that is always in my mind. How they die, especially, you know, executing people and, and lead them on fire, you know, just barbecue these people were just uh, something that is in my mind every time. How could you do that? And these people were not even guilty. And I did cover that in my thesis when I did my master's in, of criminal prosecution at University of Wollongong. I wrote a special responsibility for child soldiers in armed conflict. And I draw my head in, in, in a criminal responsibility, uh, 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 in subject of criminal responsibility for a child in armed conflict. So I wasn't shy away from my action when I tortured that guy. I'm not gonna shy away from that because it was a horrible thing to do. And of course, uh, uh, for me, uh, their pain, I still feel it because I know how I feel like to be tortured. I know how I feel like to be shot. So I'm not shying away from that. But it just retelling it uh, to smell the dead, smell the human being, it was something that I don't want to go revisit. And uh, I deal with it uh, with, that, uh, with my thesis. And my thesis was quite frankly, I put my head in it. I said, we all should be held responsible, no matter whether you're a child. Otherwise, we're going to have a bunch of psychopaths that are child soldiers that become general, and they will keep killing people for the rest of their life. So I put that full stop to, to the actual the crime. And I wrote the thesis in 2000 and 2014, before uh, the book was actually uh, commissioned for, uh, to, to be written. So I wasn't shying away from my criminal responsibility in general, and that is something that I will never do just to ignore or deny my action. Ben, what impact did it have on you, though? Uh, you, you're, you're listening to uh, Deng tell this story and others, mm. even, the, I mean, even though it's not a particularly um, horrific scene, but, but when, he's that, that when he's first taken away from his mother as a six-year-old, it's very painful to read. Yeah. What impact did it have on you? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was tough and, you know... Had tearful moments and um, you know moments of depression, which it seems unusual from a writer's perspective because it's not my story and none of these things happened to me. But you know you sort of have to write it from Deng's perspective. So 
um, you do have to feel it. You know, you have to think about what it's like being in that situation. Um, but one thing that was sort of important for the book was that w there's a lot of gravity to Deng's story and there's a lot of significance, there's a lot of sadness. But the only way that we could do the book is we would be able to get over that and escape that gravity. Um, so initially when we were writing the book, <clears throat> in the lead up to South Sudan, the relationship that we had is the relationship that Deng has with a lot of interviewers, which is everything's very serious and everything's very august and you know, very proper. And it was hard to write the book from that perspective. And it, things got a hell of a lot easier when we were at South Sudan because even though it's a war zone and even though it was just a tale of misery that we were telling, we had a blast. <laughs> we, you know, we drank beer, we hung out with gangsters. You know, we, we, it, no, we really did have kind of a wild time in South Sudan. Mm. And, yeah, we, you know, we managed to get over that and, yeah. It's all right. But we couldn't have done the book unless we sort of punched through that. And that we, we, there's a lot of lightness in our relationship, uh, usually. You know, if you hang out with us, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's very silly. Um, but if we didn't get to that point, we wouldn't have been able to write the book. Yeah, actually, I'm sorry about that, guys. Um, no, don't be silly. I feel, you know, I, yeah. It's yeah, actually, um, in terms of uh, my relationship, how the book has become a success, and I'm glad it's written that way. Uh, nothing is left out of it. Uh, basically, my worries about the man' ability to cope with the environment that I was in, I think Ben met, matched that very well. I remember we were stuck. Uh, we were taking a trip back to, to Juba. We took a risk, got in a car, and we got stuck in a mud. And if it was an, a man that didn't have any uh, physique, who could have been dead on that day? <laughs> because it was a dangerous road. We stuck in the mud, we pushed the car out, and once we did that, we were almost like a superheroes. We <laughs> ended up with the photos. <laughs> and, and that is kind of trust that I had, and I thought that I had, uh, I got, his life is in my hands, and it was indeed in my hands in a lot of ways, because it's not a safe country. And for him, I call him white liable, <laughs> yeah, because he was, he was simply he was too visible in among black people. <laughs> and Deng was black liable because he was always late. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, from from looking at that point of view, it was like always, always, and it's always my mind. It was always in my mind to make sure that he's back home safely. And we were able to complete what we did. So I think your publisher deserves a medal. They must, there must have been some nerve-wracking <laughs> moments there when you went back to Sudan. What about compromise? I mean, collaboration's a nice notion, and any of us who've ever worked in an office and you've gone to some of those corporate team-building, you know, workshops, which I'm very cynical about, but, you know, collaboration is a nice notion, but often it, inv it always involves compromise on someone's part. Someone, you know, might be, have a particular thing they really want to emphasise, the other person might not think that. And I'm sure you had friendships behind you by the time you came to finishing the books for bo both, both couples. But was there a point where one of you had to compromise on a particular aspect of the book, Ailsa? Well, I always have to compromise on everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, well, what do you think? I don't know. I don't think we compromise much. I mean, I, I, the answer to the previous question was, you know, how personal and... There could have been... We could have toned that right down. Mm. We didn't. 
And I think, uh, was that a mistake or was it uh, a part of the, the value of the book? So there was less compromise than you might feel. We did uh, shape some of the letters, um, some of the original letters to uh, put them into to, uh, the context of the whole book. But uh, the shaping was not significant and uh, I can't think of other examples of a compromise. Mm. Um, I hope so this true collaboration. I hope this isn't going away from your direction of this conversation, but look, I'm forced to say something about what Deng was just mm. saying. Mm. Uh, uh, um, I just got caught with the imagination of my childhood. I was playing with, with wooden things, pretending I was at war. It was the Second World War. Mm. Uh, we were fighting the enemy in all sorts of imaginative ways. We went home and uh, had a meal and um, settled into our homework. I'm, I'm just caught by the huge gulf between these two stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm focused on, in no way is this a criticism of what we're doing, but uh, I can't escape from m the memories of my childhood and the stories I'm hearing from Deng. Mm. If I could just bring it back to compromise for a moment. Um, I live with a very strong, what can I call a pastoral principle. Uh, a thing that shapes the, the work I do as a priest uh, and has for many years. I think we all hunger for attention. Every one of us hungers for this to have attention paid to our story. And I think that that was the energy that drove the letters that, sh that Alistair and I shared. It was an opportunity of, of exploring my childhood and my memories and I found it in my little domestic sort of middle-class situation, quite, uh, quite liberating. I just hope that, Deng, the work that you're doing on the stage now and in your, write, in your book uh, carries something of the same sort of release, that actually mm -hmm. telling your story, having people pay attention to it, uh, is in some small way healing. Does that make sense to you? Mm. It does, uh, it does a lot, and uh, I think uh, living with a trauma all your life uh, is, is like, it's, it's a bad disease. It end up being uh, committing suicide. You could kill yourself. I think I reached that point. If I didn't write this, this book, if it didn't come out, I think I would I'd nearly reach that tipping point, especially when my only brother that I think was going to be with me and help me along was killed in 2014. And, and, and if I didn't tell this story, somehow I would not have audience like you be able to be friend with me and be able to actually give me some comfort. So I think telling it helped, uh, does help, give me a bit of uh, comfort. And, and of course, you guys know that I, I repeatedly stated that I, I didn't even know that I was able to actually produce a child from the injuries that I received from the war. And be able to have a, a miracle taking place, expecting a child, to be able to tell you guys that is, I think maybe I got injected that energy in me. November. 
We were just we were talking on the way over that um, Deng's baby's due on the 11th of November, which is the same day my oldest son was born. So mm. we we're talking about the significance of the 11th of the 11th, we thought, mm. which is Remembrance Day, very important day. It's wonderful news. What did you learn during the process of collaborating on on the book? What did you learn about each other? What was the thing that sticks in your mind? as the key thing you learnt about one another. Ben, what did you learn about Deng? We all know him as a public figure. Yeah. And particularly, the, the everyone, I'm sure if you haven't, you've got to Google it, the, 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 the film from Western University Sydney. of Western Sydney that tells Deng's story. It's extraordinary, only five or six minutes long. So we, we all have a sense of knowing Deng, but, but what did you learn about him that surprised you? Well... The, the book I did previously was uh, with a guy called Mark Hunt, um, who's a UFC fighter. And if you, if you see Mark, Mark is, he's 140 kilograms of just wrecking ball, you know, and he's a Samoan <laughs> guy, tattoos coming out of his neck. And he is a lovely guy to be with, you know, real teddy bear. Um, and Mark and Dang actually are mates now. We've had a couple of nights out, you know, some food and some beers. <laughs> um, like to be a fly on a wall. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's the most enjoyable night, you know, because the public persona of, of Mark and Deng is there's an expectation that they're going to be a certain person. And, you know, when Deng tells his story, of course it's going to be solemn because it's a very solemn story. Um, but my, both Mark and Deng are just... They're, they're, the, they're the most fun guys to be with, you know. And it's full of warmth and heart and humanity. Well, look at his socks. Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> gives right. it away. You've just got to look at his socks. <laughs> but the other thing is both of them have, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, there's this sort of, you know, when we think about masculinity, we think about, uh, you know, we think about aggression and we think about toughness and things like that. But then there's also another side of it. You know, there's, there's fraternity as well. Um, and... Mark and Deng both have that in spades. And the three of us, even though we grew up in completely different situations, we all get along through that, through that sort of sense of fraternity, you know? Mm. And when we have, there's, there's a lot that we, that we share, actually, the things that we, that we both like. We were just talking about a UFC fight that we watched, you know, we like the same music, you know, we, we, we have a hell of a lot in common, despite the mm. fact that we had completely different upbringings. Deng, if you think back to that first time you had a coffee with Ben and you know, you're thinking, oh, gosh, who do I trust my story to? Can I trust this guy? What did you learn about Ben? You know, if you think of the man at the new, you knew at the end of this collaboration, what did you learn about him that surprised you? Oh. So, have you guys read the book by John Howard? John Howard book? The Lazarus is triple bias, bypass surgery? <laughs> John Howard book? <laughs> Lazarus Rising. <laughs> well, if you have, haven't read it, you need to read that. Ben, Prime actually, Minister John Howard. Prime Minister <laughs> John Howard. Well, Ben is actually... I didn't know that he went through hell. He nearly died. 29, young, as young as he could. He had heart attack. He had open heart surgery. So... To actually deal with a man that nearly died uh, is like me because I've, I died before, I know. I feel like to be dead, but if he's up and alive, I'd rather work with him because he will understand <laughs> the meaning of it. Yeah. So, yeah, the trust goes there, and then from there we become, uh, I would describe him as my brother. There's not, no other de uh, 
other description that I would give. Elsie, what about you? I mean, you know, you, you get this letter, very polite and uh, you know, generous letter from a priest, uh, you know, and it's praising you for your book, which is always nice to hear as a writer. <laughs> what did you learn about Tony? I, I mean, through the letters, but, but then I suppose more through this collaboration in, in, in sort of bringing the book to its um, finality. Um, Whoa. <laughs> I learned a lot. Um, no, I, I, you know, I th it's, it's easy to make jokes about us because we're, you know, the actress and the bishop almost, if he'd worked harder. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, it, it turned into something perhaps, I wouldn't say like a brother or like a father or anything that you can tie down. And I suppose the thing is, it's so, we so want to put labels on friendships and on each other. You know, we so want to say that person slots into this component of my life. Um, because I think we yearn to understand ourselves. I don't begin to understand really who Tony is in my life, except that the first time we met face to face, as opposed to in the letters, we'd been writing for ages then, I remember having this deep sense of, oh, there you are. I've been waiting and waiting for you to show up. <laughs> And that's so unlikely because I was not waiting for a Catholic priest to show up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a comment, of, a comment about my punctuation too. <laughs> <laughs> but I still feel like some part of me had been waiting and I didn't know which part it was. And at a very difficult and painful time in my life, um, this person showed up with a set of skills that no one else, and I have a very beautiful um, collection of friends, but none of the others had the particular set of skills that, you know, that Tony brought into my life at that time. And so I guess he's, he is my unlikely friend and there's no one else who will ever fill that space. But I'm really glad he came and filled it. And so, you know, write a letter to an author. I, can't, I mean, I can't say enough what writing a letter is because when we talk to each other in conversation, you know, we're always thinking about, oh, he's saying that, I must say that. But the letters taught me how to listen, to let him finish, and then to say, and to think about what I wanted to say and then say it. And I think that characterised the conversation, which kind of mostly at our best characterises the friendship. And I don't really have that with anyone else. I'm always overexcited with other people um, <laughs> and jumping in, you know. <laughs> but I totally So what did you learn listen. about him, though? Oh, about him? Mm. Um, that he could listen, so he taught me to listen. That a Catholic priest is not someone that I thought they were, you know, from my childhood Catholicism, that a Catholic priest is a person who can be questioned, who can be real, who can expand, who can... I mean, I don't want to start making a love song to Catholicism here. That's not what I'm doing. But I am, I suppose, saying he taught me to look at the world with my blinkers off at, in at least one corner of it. And anyone who can do that... Anywhere for anyone, it's a gift, you know. Mm. So I suppose I learned from him more than about him, really. I mean, I know, it, I know, I don't know everything about him, but I know a lot. But the best thing I learned about him was that he could show me back to me in a way that I could understand myself better and try and be bigger. Mm. That's amazing, extraordinary. He cheats at Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> How do you cheat at Scrabble? He cheats at Scrabble. How do you cheat at Scrabble? What are you doing there? Um, what, 
what just, did you what did you learn about Ailsa? What was well, I mean, if you think of the woman you first wrote that letter to, she's just a name on a book, and and it's a very revealing book. It's a it's a lovely book, sitting across sta- Spain. But, but what did you learn about this woman over the process of collaborating on this book? Look, I might just handle the question a little bit obliquely. I, I, I think, and I probably, we all agree with this, but uh, I think we live in silos. Uh, and silos are sometimes very, very high, I think. In other words, we talk to people that uh, we agree about, we, agree, we, we understand them, they're the same sort of racial background, they have the same story. We, we live in these, these echo chambers, as they often call them today. And my uh, relationship with Ailsa helped me, and with many other people, by the way, and, and some of them are here, helped me to, to peep over the top of the silo to look at another part of human experience which uh, is always enhancing, is almost... Listening to Deng's story again, I mean, that's part of the richness of, of breaking out of your own assumptions and, uh, and the silo on which we lived. Um, Elsa's helped me to do that, and for which I'm enormously grateful. Uh, I like to think I'm not living in a silo, and I wonder whether we all feel that a bit, you know, we're a little bit, we're, we're, we're wider than that, and yet we're not. Mm. We live in our own experience. And to, to move out of that experience and be challenged by it is uh, a, a life-enhancing mm. issue, and it has been for me. But, you know, we uh, sound quite peaceable as we talk <laughs> about this. I should say, you know, our arguments came from within our silos... I mean, when we hit on clericalism and feminism, oh, hello world. <laughs> Fireworks. You know, I mean, the kind of, the kind of friendship doesn't, I, I think doesn't come from not arguing, it comes from listening to the other arguments. Sorry to jump in there, but we no, were no, sounding right, very right. peaceable. <laughs> <laughs> very similar. I hardly know these people. Though, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but what have I learned about, well, yes, I think the, the, the feminine experience... The experience of a, uh, a person outside the institution who uh, continued to challenge me about all sorts of issues in, uh, well, you gods, in the contemporary Catholic Church, there's endless issues to, uh, mm. to be challenged about and to, to be th- thought about. Um, uh, I've learnt more about the theatre. <laughs> I thought I knew a good deal about the theatre, but th- that's been expanded enormously. I've met He friends. wants to be an actor. <laughs> Don't laugh. It's that's scary. Not- <laughs> That's not accurate. I am an actor. <laughs> this is show business. I was going to say, is it standing up and giving a sermon, you know, some kind of... Takes enormous role? dramatic ability, exactly right. <laughs> Quite often fiction as well. <laughs> I, I miss that, Ben, but... <laughs> Can we turn our minds, and I, I think, because this is really intrigues me, as I said, as a, as a journalist... I mean, look, you know, you might say joint byline on a story every now and then, but really those journalists have tended to work on their own. Um, it's just a courtesy to put two names on it. What were the logistics like with you two in terms of getting the story? I mean, traditional journalist to subject, tape recorder or recorder, yep. long conversations, you go back, you sift through it, Ben, work out where, what bits will be good for the narrative, or, you know, what bits might be... You've got to shape it into... His voice as well, so it, it is Deng's voice. It's not your voice coming through. How did the logistics work? Um, 
it was just a, a, a lot of time and a lot of interviews. Um, but then there were also times where, you know, as we as we all are with with our own personal history, there's a lot of things that you're not really 100% sure about. So there would be opportunities to go and um, interview other people, and then come back to Deng, and it would it would fire something in his mind. Um, I think sort of the most profound uh, of those interviews were was I think it was the last day that we were in Juba. Um, so in, in when you're overseas. Yeah, in South mm. Sudan. Deng um, Deng's brother was killed in 2014, um, but he wasn't. 100% sure about the circumstances of his of his brother's death, um, and the last uh, the last day we sat down in this Chinese restaurant um, and we got the people together who were who were with John um, in his final days and we we sort of hammered out uh, what what had actually happened. Um, but yeah, it's you know if you're going to do a book like this, you just want to spend as much time as you can with uh, with. With the subject, you know, not that would just have been to get tough given how busy Dang is. I mean, I imagine it. Did you have to diarise, you know, meetings in advance? Because I mean, he's a I busy just man. just make yourself available the whole time. If you're doing something like this, you you really just have to go. Okay, I'm in. I'm in this person's hands. Mm. Um, so you know, Dang had finished work, and I'd just be sitting there, you know, out the front of his place, tapping away at the uh, at the pages, <laughs> and then we'd be like, all right, let's go to the pub, get a beer, and, and chat. So that's where you'd often chat at a you know more informal kind of setting. Usually, yeah, I mean. There were no formal settings. <laughs> it, was, no formal. it was just cafes and bars and, you know, airports and, you know. Home. Home, yeah, just sitting there chatting, 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 chatting. Dan, what about you? How did you make time in your life for the book? Because you are a busy man. Ah, uh, it was something need to be done. Uh, we just have to get it done. And for a band, it was something needed to be done, so we've got to be committed to There that. is a deadline, obviously. Mm. Yep. Yeah, there's a deadline and there's a lot of setback too. And uh, do you remember in, when we were in Addis Ababa, uh, band, I was telling Ben's story and overnight, he was, he, he actually had a nightmare, a worst nightmare that he could ever imagine. He, he was running, getting shot at, and then I said, ha-ha. <laughs> now you, you you feel the pain now, man. Mm. And um, a night later, he had a, you were sick like a dog. Dog was better. You were sick. I remember he looked like he lost four kilos in just one single night. And um, I, I was kind of like, no, this is not happening, man. But he managed. He managed to mm. pull through. So there were a lot of hurdles that we have to go through, even places where we're supposed to go. Uh, we were not able to go to those areas, so a, a bit of a bit of setback. But it was method writing, the sickness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, uh, the the book is finished, done, and there's nothing left out of there. Uh, the few, maybe maybe few war criminal, big one that are not actually mentioned <laughs> in details, mm. in details. But we, we put factual basis for that, but we were not able to uh, go there and write a novel that is uh, 2,000 pages or 10,000 pages. Yeah. Uh, we were just trying to make sure that the book is written, there was clarity, and facts are correct, and they are correct. Mm. Yeah. I think that's really really interesting about these two books is what shines through, except for poor Ben. He's the sort of the, the ghost in the background <laughs> doing all doing all the work. But so his voice isn't there. But 
Ailsa, Tony and Deng's voices are so strong and because it's through letters, I mean, letters are just, an, you know, such a strong representation of who you are and how you approach things and thought and ideas. Tell us about the logistics, though, of reining all those letters in. I know that you said you'd originally started with this grand plan of essays and then you got um, to go away to Bundanon. To a, to, which is a lovely, you know, thanks to Arthur Boyd, uh, a lovely retreat that writers and artists have the privilege of experiencing. And, and that was a turning point for you, wasn't it, in terms of seeing how you could shape this, um, this collaboration? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was down there working on something else and it was dying in the bum. And so I just sort of thought I'll pick up ours, which had, we'd given away, really. Um, it, was in the, it was in the sort of aftermath of my husband having died and so I kind of couldn't keep my mind still on anything so I picked up our manuscript and had this blinding clarity that everything we had tried to write when we were thinking about doing something to write was as I had said before you know dreadful so chopped it all out um, and then but then we did also sort of have to try well, I sent that chopped back version which was about 30,000 words that just went I sent it to Tony and Tony went yeah yeah this is better then we had to try and find a way to glue it together, which just became letters. Um, How did you do that? Did you speak on the phone? Did you get together? We, I mean, you're in yeah. Melbourne, Tony's in Sydney. Well, by then, in fact, here's a funny little sideline about the book. Um, I, in the sh sort of aftermath of Pete's death, packed up, sold up everything and moved to Sydney. Um, and I moved to Watson's Bay by a series of weird coincidences. A Sydney real estate agent who was kind. They are <laughs> angels sometimes. Don't turn up your noses. And I ended up in Watson's Bay. And a year later, Tony retired and they, they in their wisdom in the diocese, sent him to Watson's Bay. So um, there was a bit of toing and froing about how much we would want to be in the same <laughs> suburb. But, but that actually meant that we could get together and fight face to face, which was... Um, <laughs> Mostly we cut out cat videos. Actually, the thing about the letters is they are pretty much, for better or for worse, what they were. Um, which is odd, you know, because I'll t there were little odd things. Like, I began calling Tony Antonio at one point because of the Spanish thing with sitting across Spain. Now other people call him Antonio. And I think, that's weird. How come? Or There's sort of odd little things about putting something so personal into the world that they become... And I was just thinking then, Deng, listening to you, what it is to tell... I mean, I was very nervous about putting our friendship into the world because I felt like doing something like this was going to commercialise something very important to me. As I was listening to you, I was actually thinking, what's it like to... It's not just the book, is it? It's the telling and retelling and retelling... It's like you're not going to be able to put this book down for a while, are you? That bit of your life. Yes. Um, everyone, you know, uh, when you have a dark side of you and the dark side of you is, is, is like a trauma. Uh, it's a trauma itself. It's so hard to be able to tell it. But once you want to tell the story, it becomes almost, um, as Tony put it, it's almost at value, add value into you in terms of being able to reconcile with your past somehow. So it is. I, I, I keep reading the books all the time. I keep reading it. I haven't stopped reading my book. I keep reading it. The chapters there that reminded me every day about, uh, about special things, especially the last chapter uh, when 
uh, an accident took place about my mom home. I just keep recalling that. It just give me patience to be able to say, it. well, let it go, Deng. Let it go. So there is always a room to be able to play with your story to actually reconcile with yourself. So I, I, I took it as a therapy because I don't see any other therapy in, in life. This is the major therapy for me, yeah. to be able to see yeah. that Deng don't do it, Deng don't do it, Deng don't do it. It's just important for me, don't do it if it is something that you don't wish your mom would do it or your, your brother would, would have not done it. So I, I, I think that that's the only way, the best I could put it, but yeah. What certainly. a gift for your child, though, too. Oh. I mean, a tough one, but what a, you know, what a thing to be able to, you know, to... I'm sure you will talk about this with your child and, and your, your, you know, your family and you'll want your child to know your family, but to have that book there, you know, and I'm sure there'll be times when your child's older that they will, ret you know, they'll return to that book and it would be something precious. Yeah, I think my child, if I, my child will, I think it will be the last uh, of my family to stop in the, the, the war. The pain. Yeah, the pain and also the war. I want him to stop, or her to stop the bloody war that's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. If you will be sacrificed, let him be, or she be, will be sacrificed. Because we just had enough about this violence, about killing of each other, human beings. We, we, we have to stop, just... No way. You gotta stop. You gotta stop. I'm gonna ask one more question and then we'll, we'll hand over to you. There'll be a couple of roving mics. So if you wanna have a think about what you'd like to say, please um, make it short and sweet if possible. Uh, they're all wonderful people, and, um, but I'm sure we can do away with you all hearing about how wonderful you are. We'd love good <laughs> questions. I'm just gonna finish my side of it by just asking each of you, how do you feel about the book uh, now it's out in the world? What's, what's the response been like? Ben? I'm incredibly proud of the book. Um, you know, I had worked as a journalist in a magazine journal for a long time and, uh, you know, the greatest privilege as a writer is just to have a good story and I got, um, you know, I started working with Deng and I, I started working on this book that I've got coming out in October about the Australian Special Forces and both of them I just remember calling my dad and just saying, I can't believe I, I get to do this. You know, and now that the book's out and, you know, the relationship that I have with Deng and seeing people's response, you know, people come up and hug him and cry and, you know, I just, it's pure privilege. Mm. Deng, how, how do you, I mean, you've spoken about how wonderful it is for you to have all these people here to give you that support and almost to say um, thank you. Thank you for telling your story. Uh, well, what can I say? I, I work seven days a week. I makes a lot of money from litigating, from charging clients, from doing anything. But if I can live, live life with even not getting paid a dollar and make sure that the story goes there to stop further war and this book goes into the hand of our children, the next generation, and they would be able to know their value and then I'm, I'll be most proud human being that ever walked on this planet because the violence has to stop, because I don't want my child to be in my position. No, nobody wants their children to be in my position. Nobody wants their child to be shot when they're six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Nobody wants that to happen. And we have to stop it. And I think I'm quite proud that I've taken time to be able to tell you my side, because I don't want, 
Uh, I say no to child soldiers. I say no to that. Shouldn't happen. Mm. And that is why I'm very proud of the book. And I hope you too will be proud of that, that I'm alive, be able to tell you that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also, Tony, have, how's the response been? I think I said before, I've just moved from one level of surprise to another, just about uh, <laughs> the, the interest in, in the book. It's a, um, um, the thing that, uh, how can I link our book with this extraordinary statement that we're hearing from Dang and Ben? Let me try without trying to be glib or superficial. I think the power of conversation of listening to one another is almost the heart of so much human anxiety. Mm. I think we move into violence. I mean, I can't even imagine the violence we're talking about here. But because we can't talk and we allow our emotions to stop ourselves. So it's the power of simple, human, honest conversation that is at the heart of this funny little bunch of letters that were written. And I think people have picked that up and I feel, yeah, deeply satisfied that uh, they can see that sort of dimension in it. Mm. Um, I, I think the thing I feel most proud of is my friendship because, this friendship, because when it began, when I began writing to Tony, a lot of people said, what are you talking about with that old priest? <laughs> um, they did. That's what they said. Very old priest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't know what I was talking about with him particularly a lot of the time, but I knew that I was finding someone with a questing mind who hadn't shut out things, even difficult things. And um, so I feel really proud of my friendship and I feel proud of my friend. And I suppose the other thing I, I think is, you know, in the light of both these books, I mean, whether it be Catholicism or the theatre or feminism or you know, the story of a, of a child soldier. A friend of mine in the theatre, a beautiful writer called Michael Gurr, who died this year, once said of telling refugee stories, which we were involved in together, the Actors for Refugees in Melbourne. Someone said to us, why do you want to keep telling these stories? I mean, we've all heard them, we all know them, and you're only telling them to the people who are converted. You're the converted. And Michael's answer, I've never forgotten, was because the converted need to hear them again and again to put some more metal into their spines. They need to know that the story is out there. We need to know it so we can go back out into the world. And I think, you know, all that we're doing here is as a result of two friendships, I suppose, in a weird way. And you all have friendships. And it's just about the opportunity to listen, to take the time. And I'm really glad my friend took the time for me. Taking the time for someone's a big deal. So, you know, I'm proud of my friend, really. I think we're all <laughs> going to end up in tears. <laughs> it's time to finish up. Join me in thanking Ben, Deng, Ailsa and Tony. And Rosemary. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.